Well, it is always to be good to be back here at uh, Hope Community. I always want to say Family Bible Church. It's in my brain forever, so this will forever be Family Bible to me. I'm, I'm firmly living in the past, but it's great to be here. I, I want to uh, get you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I want to talk to you about something that I know is a problem in my life, and I believe it's a problem in my life, it's a problem in your life as well. Um, I will publicly admit that it's quite possible for me to be more irritated by the sin, weakness, and failure of others than I am my own. I can tell by your laughing, I'm not alone. Uh, to be very aware of the sin of other people. To be very aware of the foolish things they do. To be very aware of bad attitudes, uh, wrong desires, poor choices. Uh, most of that awareness isn't because I hunger for people to know the gospel. It's because, because of their foolishness, because of their weakness, because of their failure, they make my life more difficult. And that irritates me. Because I would like to have pre-sanctified holy people in my life. Everywhere. And, and to the degree that, that you're more concerned about the sin, weakness, and failure of others than you are your own, to that degree, you are minimizing sin in your life. You are forgetting that your greatest, deepest problems in life, I'm about to hurt your feelings, exist inside of you, not outside of you. Your big problem is not that you're married to a less than perfect person. That's not a shock to God. God's going, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. They married a sinner. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Your biggest problem is not that you have children who don't esteem your parenting. Don't say to you, yes, mother, I will forthwith go and obey because you, mom, are wise. That's not your big problem. Your big problem isn't that you live in a fallen world. Uh, that is dramatically broken and doesn't function the way God intended. I mean, that's, that's a hardship for all of us, and uh, we all are, are battling with the hardship of life in a fallen world, but that's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem exists inside of us, not outside of us. And, and when, you, when you're more focused on the sin and weakness and failure of another person and not your own, you are minimizing your need. Now, stay with me. The minute you minimize your need, you devalue God's grace. Because you're actually preaching the false gospel to yourself that what you, what you fundamentally need is relief. Release. Not personal transformation. That's a false gospel. That's the gospel everybody wants to believe. That if... If I just had a better job, if I just had more money, if I just had better health, if I just had better friends, if I just had better husband or wife, if I just had better children, 
I'd be. I'd be perfect. Uh, now, you know this is, this is human to do. If, you, if little Johnny has pushed Susie, uh, his little sister, and she's bumped her head against the wall, and you ask Johnny why he did that, Johnny's not going to talk about Johnny. He's not going to say, well, I'm a sinner, of course. I have violence in my heart. You should expect worse from me. Johnny talks about Susie. Well, she always gets my way. She always does this to me. Because Johnny wants to believe that his biggest problem in life exists outside of me, not outside of me, not inside of me. Parents, that's why your children resist parenting, because they don't think they need it. I mean, that those fights over with little young children over what to eat are not about diet. This child has not read a diet book and decided they want to eat the paleo diet. It's about the child saying to, to you, I don't need you to rule me, thank you. I'm a self-sufficient, self-ruling human being. Just leave me alone, please. That, that fight over going to bed, when to go to bed, is not about sleep. This child hasn't done a sleep study. It's, it's, it's a dramatically human thing to convince ourselves that what we need is external to us, not internal to us. And the minute you convince yourself of that, are you listening to me? You are no longer excited about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You aren't. Now, I want to say this to you. And again, this is hard talk, but I'm amongst friends. And I get to leave. Uh, it's easy, Christianity, to do what we just did. It's easy. It's easy to sing great worship music and throw your head back and your, lift your arms up and just to be in love with Jesus. That's just easy on Sunday morning. And it's easy to think that because I've done that, I just thoroughly love the grace of Jesus. I thoroughly depend on the grace of Jesus. It's easy to think that uh, because this moment with other people singing and with the good content, it's, it's easy to be involved with that. My question is, what's the state of your dependency and celebration on the grace of Jesus Christ Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday night. And so I love this passage of scripture of 1 Corinthians 13 or 15 is, is in the Bible because it is the, the most uh, lengthy discussion of the power and glory and practicality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you have to understand this. It's in the Bible, not so that you would just have an academic, intellectual, theological understanding of the resurrection. It's not Paul's purpose. Because his, his purpose in in all of 1 Corinthians, is to lay out what it looks like to live in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
oh, there's theology that drives 1 Corinthians. But it doesn't look like a systematic theology because what Paul is seeking to do is drive home the radical nature of living in light of the person and work and presence and promises of the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so the, the, the crescendo of that conversation is 1 Corinthians. And what he argues in 1 Corinthians is you can't make sense out of the gospel. The gospel is absolutely meaningless apart from the resurrection. If Christ wasn't raised, then there's no power over sin. There's no future resurrection. Christianity is now devalued down to another philosophy on the shelf of philosophies. Choose your philosophy. Sleep in on Sunday. Have a bagel and a newspaper and forget it. Don't bother opening your Bible. It's worthless. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 15. That's why it's in the Bible. And, the, and the, the book of 1 Corinthians begins with, with this discussion that there, there are only two ways of living. You, you live driven, your life is driven and shaped by the philosophy of the world, or it's delivered, it's, it's shaped and driven by the foolishness of the gospel. That's, that's where this book begins. And so everything inside of Paul, as you as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ down to street level, down to where we live every day. And so I, wanna, I just want to read for you maybe the first ten verses. You'd look there. I'm reading in the ESV. If you have a Bible with you or your iPhone or iPad or whatever weird, sad off-brand you're carrying. <laughs> you can turn there as well. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, there, it is such, a huge and wonderful privilege to just have this moment to think about the words that I just read. It's a miracle of your grace that they were retained for all these years for us. It's a miracle of your grace that they've been printed in 
these books that we carry around. It's an ma amazing miracle of your grace that we're in this room. It's an amazing miracle of your grace that you give gifts to people to unpack your word. And so we celebrate that miracle and we pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say to us. We know that we have hard, fickle, and often easily distracted hearts. Draw our hearts to attend to you and your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the first words of this passage. Now I would remind you. You have to ask yourself the question. There is no more stunning, mind-numbing, history-altering event than the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, what could be more incredible than a man truly dead, now in a borrowed tomb, who walks away alive? Alive. He was dead dead. Really dead. Not just a swoon, as some would like to say. Dead. And he lives. Why would, why would Paul ever think that he would need to remind people of something that stunning, that miraculous? Why would he feel the need to say, I'm just, really passionate with reminding you of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the epicenter of that gospel being the resurrection of Jesus. You think no Christian could ever forget this. Why? Well, I don't think that what Paul is addressing at this moment is your theological system. He's not he's not thinking that somehow the resurrection will drop off as an item of your formal confessional theology. He's not, he's not afraid that you'll cut that page out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What he's talking about is the dynamic of street-level gospel amnesia. That at the level of where we live every day, at the level of our work, or our education, or our leisure, or our parenting, or our single life, or our marriage, we live as gospel amnesiacs. That parents, as you look at your children, you, you forget the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You forget that the only hope for those little young human beings is the transforming power of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Now, if you forget that, I will tell you what you will do. You will reduce Christian parenting down to a neat set of rules with an accompanying set of enforcements. And you will reduce parenting down to being a lawgiver, a prosecutor, a judge, and a jailer. And I would like to say to you, if that's what you're doing, that's neither Christian nor parenting. It's just not. Because all your children needed with rules, and all they needed was enforcement, Jesus would have never had to come. There's a whole book 
in the New Testament, Romans, that principal argument is we must not ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. And if, if you forget the gospel as a parent, you will load the welfare of your children on your shoulders every day and you will think by the threat of your punishment, by the volume of your voice, by the force of your personality, you have, you have the power to do things that you don't have the power to do. No wonder Christian parents are exhausted. No wonder they're discouraged. No wonder they're frustrated because they're gospel amnesiacs. Listen, if you're carrying the burden of the welfare of your children, your children are cooked. Right? Because you may be a noble parent, you just don't happen to be the Messiah. Your children already know that. That you're less than messianic. It doesn't work. If all your children needed with the law, this whole story wouldn't be in the Bible. All God would have had it done is drop down on us a set of rules. If in your marriage, you're a gospel amnesiac, you do the same thing. You quickly communicate to the person you're living with what will make you happy. That's your law. And you sh quickly show them what happens when you're not happy. That's your punishment. And there's so many marriages that are horribly, sadly law-bound. You make me happy, I'll be nice to you. You don't make me happy, I'm going to punish you in some way. I mean, have you ever had somebody give you the silent treatment? That's what it's about. This person's normally talkative, and you say to that person, my, you're quiet. They say, is it a sin to be quiet? That's a clue. You say, I think we should talk. They say, you don't want to talk to me right now. You say, I think you're angry. They say, I'm not angry. It makes me so mad when you accuse me of being angry. I'm just being quiet, and I suggest you be quiet too. Now, what's going on there? Somehow, you have broken my law, and I'm not going to stab a knife in your chest, but I'll rise to the throne of God and act as if you're dead for however long it takes to satisfy my vengeance. How ugly is that? That never ever, ever will produce a marriage of unity, understanding, and love. It won't. And after a while, you get tired of, of the minefield that you have to walk through in your marriage. No wonder you're not close anymore. No wonder you don't have that friendship anymore. No wonder you go out together and you sit in silence. No wonder. You've done that to you. Because you're a gospel amnesiac. Maybe it's your work. And you're, you're actually asking your employment to do for you what a job can never do. Listen, your job can't give you happiness. Your job can't give you inner peace. Your job can't give you a reason to get up in the morning. Your job will never be your Savior. It won't. 
How many people drag themselves every day to work? Good Christian people drag themselves to work and they end up hating their job because they believed when they took this job that it would do what the last job didn't do for me. It'll save me. It'll never do it. You finally realize you're in a broken company like all companies are. You're with broken people. Promises get broken and you get bitter and you get discouraged. That's not a job problem. That's a gospel problem. It's gospel amnesia. What about your physical health? We put way too much pressure on our physical bodies to give us inner peace. You got a broken body. And it will not deliver peace and contentment and heart. Your body can't give you life. It can't. It's not possible. In the last two years of my own physical sickness, uh, six surgeries in two years, I've been confronted with much of what I would have named as trust in Christ was just confidence in the fact that I was healthy and had lots of energy. I'd, until I got sick, I didn't ever remember a time in my life was I was tired. I only went to sleep because people told me to. I used to say that sleep was a necessary interruption of an otherwise productive day. Uh, so many of the things that we look at as difficulties in our life are made difficulties in our life because we're asking of those things what they will never deliver to us. I'm going to say this. Your church isn't your Messiah either. I mean... Read about the churches in the New Testament. Which one of those would you have chosen to attend? They're all a mess. Because the church is filled with broken people in, in need of the further work of redemption. Your elders will fail you. They will. The music won't always be great. Sometimes the worship music is just a mess. Preaching won't always be perfect. Preachers are human beings. Jay Adams tells a story of falling asleep in his own sermon. He was on a, he was on a preaching tour and it was Sunday night. The poor man was exhausted and he literally fell asleep while preaching. He woke up, didn't know where he was in his notes, just chose a place and started preaching. Someone came to him afterwards and said, this was the most Holy Spirit-driven sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> you preached to a certain point, you bowed your head and prayed, and then on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you preached that point again to us. God must have told you that we needed to hear it again. 
Jay, Jay being the uh, forthright man, he, was, he said, actually, I fell asleep. <laughs> Listen, here's the reason for the reminder. If you don't live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel out here as an item of theology, but a gospel, the gospel in everyday life, the, the powerful message of the transforming power of Jesus Christ, uh, you will ask the things in your life to be for you and to do for you what they can never do. There are thousands and thousands of couples that are disappointed in their marriage because they hope to marry their Savior. When I hear a wife say to me something like this, women tend, tend to say it this way. Men have the same feelings but say it in other ways. All I ever wanted was a husband who would make me happy. I think that poor man's cooked. Because he should nourish you and he should cherish you. He should love you dearly. You should, you should develop a beautiful companionship of unity and understanding and love. But he has no ability to make you happy. He doesn't. And, and so what we do is we ask earth to be our savior. And I would ask you this morning, could it be that there are places in your life that that's exactly what you're doing? Could it be that when, when you look back at a week and you say, that was a horrible week, it's because something in that week failed to give you life? Or I wish I'd never gotten married, or I hate the fact that I'm single, or whatever you could put in there. Could it be that that's driven by the fact that you're asking everyday life to do what it can't do? I think there's a plague of gospel amnesia in the church of Jesus Christ. And I think it's killing us. I think it's creating huge dissatisfaction, huge bitterness, huge anger, huge inability to deal with life in a fallen world. Because in case you hadn't figured this out, this isn't paradise. You won't turn your life right now into paradise. Paradise is coming, but this isn't paradise. God's chosen for His glory and our good for, to have us live in this fallen world and will never turn into paradise for you. Your hope will never be found by somehow manufacturing paradise. Your hope is found in the radical, transforming message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that's not enough, Paul says this, For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received. I love that phrase. Because Paul is saying, this, there is nothing in life more important than this gospel that was deposited to me. That was given to me. 
Nothing in life. There's nothing you can consider. There's nothing you could think. There's nothing you could do. There's nothing you could achieve that would ever stand next to the supreme value of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. Listen, it's more important than your marriage. It's more important than your parenting. It's more important than your job. It's more important than a nice house and a cool car and great clothes and an association of friends. It's more important. Now, now here's what he's, he's hitting at. We are value-oriented people. We're always naming things important in our life and what you name as important in your life captures your heart and controls your living. Isn't that right? And so, so what is important to me, if I watched the video of your last six weeks, and I watched the places where you're happy, and the places where you're sad, and the places where you're fearful, and the places where you're discouraged, or the places where you have motivation, what would I conclude is of most valuable to you? What cranks you? If you would say, if I only had, then my life would be, what sits on the other side of your if only? Because what sits on the other side of your if only has powerful rulership in your heart, whether you realize it or not. Now here's what's, what's important to recognize. That this side of eternity, it's very hard to keep what God says is important, important in our hearts, right? Things rise to levels of importance way beyond their true importance, and they claim our hearts, and then control our living. Maybe you won't be able to relate to this example, ladies, uh, but you, I think you can understand it. Let's say that you're a wife and you've attached your identity and meaning, purpose, and inner sense of well-being to the order and cleanliness of your home. Now, is, is it wrong to want a beautiful place to live in? No, it's not. But it makes a bad God. It must not rule your heart. And what's that going to create? Well, you'll follow people into rooms. Making sure they don't make your house look like somebody lives there. You'll notice a dent on a pillow from 50 paces and you'll, that will irritate you. You'll take personally the crumbs that are on the kitchen counter. You'll say, I do and I do and I do for this family, and every day they crumb me. <laughs> As if your family was carrying around, everybody in your family is carrying around a sandwich bag of crumbs. And they'll say, you crumb her at 6.30. I'll crumb her at 8.30. It'll drive her crazy. Yeah. Now you're walking around thinking that you've been singled out for the particular suffering of living with a community of slobs. You don't have a slob problem. You have a value problem. This thing that has some level of importance has risen way beyond its true importance and has claimed your heart and is now 
shaping your responses to the people in your life. That's a big deal. Or. Or, or maybe you've decided. That you're going to have the best lawn in your community. I think people in the United States are just lawn nuts. I mean, we, we've gone crazy. Uh, most of our lawns, uh, particularly in the suburbs where you have lawns, they're just chemical dumps, right? We pour so much chemicals in there. Every, it's amazing that earth just hasn't collapsed. And, and you invest so much money, time, and energy in your lawn. Your lawn. Your lawn grass just grow it long and bail it you lost your mind or maybe it's your automobile I mean we, we live a, a, don't we in a car crazy culture listen those ads on TV don't sell you the mechanics of the car they sell you the image of the car because automobiles have become a marker of your image, a marker of your success. That's craziness. That's something that's risen to a level of importance way beyond its true importance. It's supposed to be transportation. Get from point A to point B without having to walk. Beautiful thing. It doesn't mean you're important because you have cool mags. The only thing cool mags say about you is you're willing to buy them. No message on your identity there. You should not live a megalistic life. It's crazy. And so, so Paul is, is saying this to us. There's a war fought on the turf of our heart. It's fought for what's going to be important to us between the already of our conversion and the not yet of our home going. And the reason the gospel is so important is it's not an item of theology. It's the only way you will properly understand everything else in your life. Does that make sense? The gospel is not just an entrance and an exit. It's a lens that you put on. It's a pair of glasses that you put on that now explains everything in your life. It explains your inner struggles. It explains your relationships. It explains values. It explains the hardships of life in a fallen world. It explains all of those things. You've got to have the gospel as the thing that is so important to you that it has the power to shape the way you understand everything in your life. And because it shapes the way you understand everything in your life, it shapes the way you respond to those things. The gospel is a lifestyle. It has to be said that theology is never an end in itself. Theology is always a means to an end. And the end is a radically changed, radically transformed, radically redirected life. And so I sit in the middle of difficulty, but I still have joy. I face hardship, but I still have motivation. 
I've dealt with rejection or betrayal and I, I still have peace in my heart. Why? Because there's something that I understand about life, about hope that can't be taken away by sickness, that can't be taken away by betrayal, that can't be taken away by financial want. You cannot take away what moves me by any of those circumstances. Because those things are not my hope. Oh, is it hard to go through those things? Of course there is. It is. Are those hardships life painful? Of course they are. But if they have the power to shut you down, perhaps they've been in a position of importance that they should have never been in. What is important to you? What has the power? to stimulate your joy or to make you want to quit? Back to 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now listen to this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he goes on. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Now when, when Paul thinks of the core important message of Christianity. The message that has captured and transformed his life. He doesn't first think of what we do in relationship with God. He first thinks in what God has done for us. He doesn't start with exhortation. He doesn't start with calls and commands. He doesn't start with you should. He starts with Christ has. He starts with the historical facts of redemption. He's saying that every hope you have in life is rooted in actual, miraculous, historical things that Jesus did for you. Because if your hope is based on what you do toward God, there's no one in this room who has any hope. We don't. Because you know this is true. There's one moment where you can act out of faith and the next moment you can be faithless. Everyone in this room is just one thought away from unbelief. Everyone. It's not about us. It's about Him 
and what he has done for us. Now, that takes us back to where I started. Why is that true? Because the thing that I need to be rescued from is me. If it was left up to me, I would have never sought God. If it was left up to me, my mouth would be way more filled with the praise of Paul than the praise of Jesus. If it was left up to me, I would take all kinds of credit for things I could have never done on my own. If it was left up to me, I would be horribly, profoundly lost. And you've got to admit that. You've got to admit there's, there's no natural faith in you toward God. There's no natural love of God in you. There's no, no natural desire to surrender your heart to someone other than yourself in you. There's no natural uh, motivation to expend your time, energy, and the details of your life to someone you can't see and you can't hear and you can't touch. That is utterly, fundamentally unnatural. There's only one explainable reason, only one explainable reason why anybody who is in this room is in this room this morning, including me, and that's divine grace. Because the average person walking on the street is not, on Saturday isn't thinking, where am I going to go to church tomorrow? You talk to the average person on the street and you ask them what they think about God, you will probably not hear this. He is my Lord and my Savior and he has rescued me from me and promised me eternal redemption. You won't hear that. Because listen, theology, philosophy are natural to human beings. Everybody, every human being is a philosopher. Every human being is a theologian in some way. Re religion is natural to human beings. We, we are wired to think about transcendent things. But true biblical faith is entirely unnatural. It's entirely counterintuitive to, to everyone. It just is. And so the rootedness of our hope is never in our obedience. It's never in your religious commitment. It's never in the things that we do. It's never in the fact that you've gone on to seven missions trips or that you're biblically literate or theologically knowledgeable. I want to say this because I think this stuff needs to be said. I've determined I'm going to be an honest preacher. We need to get over ourselves. I think, I think Christianity is filled, my heart too, with all kinds of scary religious pride. We think that we've arrived. We haven't arrived. We've been rescued. There's a difference. And that's why Paul says, here's what's important. 
Jesus did this. God harnessed the forces of nature and controlled the events of human history so at a certain time, His Son would come and live the life you couldn't live and die the death you should have died and rise again, conquering sin and death, so that you would have what you could never get on your own. That's the Gospel. Bottom line. No compromises, no deals. It's the Gospel. Do you believe that? Then remember what he says earlier in 1 Corinthians. If what you have, you received, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Listen, you walk by a person who's a bit of a mess and you say in your, your brain, Loser, you have now taken credit for something that you never achieved, you received. Because the only difference between you and that person is depicted in one word. Can you give me the word? Grace. But for the grace of God, you and I would be there. Anytime you're intolerant, of the sin, weakness, and failure of another person, which at moments all of us are, you're giving yourself credit for something you could have never produced. Because you are that person, only rescued by grace. Listen. We are facing things in our culture that we have never faced in the way we're facing we are now so sexually insane as a culture. We are in such massive, massive gender confusion. We don't even know what terminology to use. And listen, spiritual pride will destroy your ability to minister to the culture you now have to minister to. Because you will mock, silently condemn, or maybe relationally hate the very person who is you apart from grace. And because of our pride, when it comes to these issues, we've led with condemnation instead of led with love. I think it's abhorrent to call a person, to name a person by their sin. How dare we? Who could stand up to that standard? That's the stuff of spiritual pride. It's in me too. And it forgets the core message of the gospel is we received it because Christ did it. We couldn't have done it. If we had to do it, we wouldn't have received it. So why would you puff up your chest and think that you're better? Consequently, there's a whole culture of sinners who would never feel comfortable in our churches. They would never feel welcomed. What I would want for Hope Community is for it to be filled with broken, messed up people. Right? Who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But if you take credit for what you didn't produce, you become a proud community that in subtle ways communicates condemnation and the doors of welcome are closed. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. I would ask you this morning, where in your life are you taking credit for what you couldn't have produced? I want to direct you to one final thing in this passage because this is really where we need to end. It's in the middle of this high holy conversation about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the epicenter of that being the resurrection, Paul tells his own story. Why would he do that? Maybe he's just full of himself. Why, why would he, he turn and start talking about himself? Because Paul rec recognizes his story is such a powerful illustration of the transforming power of the gospel. This was a vengeful, murderous man. He was not seeking Christ in any way. In fact, the message of Christ and the legacy of Christ, it was his goal to destroy forever. And the only way you explain Paul's story is that he was interrupted. His journey was interrupted by the powerful intervention of divine grace. There's humor in this story. I, I, I love dear Ananias who's called to talk to Paul. Now Paul is known for being a murderer. And Ananias has this kind of conversation with God. Seriously? This is the man you want me to talk to? And yet by the time he gets there, the first words out of his mouth to, to this man who is now under the intervention of grace is brother. It's a term of acceptance and forgiveness. He was communicating the forgiveness of the Savior to this man. And that Paul would become the person that we know him to be is an argument for what only grace can do. And there is no greater understatement in the New Testament than, than he, when he says, the grace of God was not given to me in vain. No one is more influential in the way that we think about the gospel than this man. No one wrote a greater volume of New Testament books than Paul did. Right now, Sunday in April 2017, we are reading and unpacking the words of this man who the only thing he wanted was destroy any legacy of the gospel. That's what transforming grace can do. What has the power to make unhappy people happy? What has the power to make a lustful man a pure man? What has the power to make an angry man a peacemaker? What has the, pow the power to make a thief a giver? What has the power to make a self-oriented demanding person a servant? What has that power? The gospel has that power. Jesus has that power. Grace has that power. It is the only hope 
You can't remind yourself enough of that. You can't make that too important. You can't allow yourself to take credit for what only God can do. Because the risen Lord Jesus Christ alone has the power to take that dysfunctional marriage and make it a place of beautiful love. To take that dissatisfied heart and make it content. To make that silent life of moral impurity, secret life of moral impurity, pure again. To remove anger and replace it with peace and joy. To cause a child to want to obey. To cause a boss not to care as much about his bottom line, but to love the people that work for him. To make a politician not obsessed with power, but obsessed with service. What has the power to do what we wish would happen in our world? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the transforming power of the risen Christ Jesus. You can't let yourself be a gospel amnesiac. You can't let anything become more important than that. And you can't allow yourself to take credit for what you have received. Because when you do that, you have devalued the only thing that has the power to do for you what needs to be done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of this passage and how Paul is speaking to people like us. He's in a church like this one. He knows the struggles of the gospel there, and he speaks into those struggles with power and practicality. Thank you. May we remember. May we know what's truly important. And may we never take credit for what we couldn't have produced on our own. And therefore, run again and again and again to the radical power of your transforming grace. In Jesus' name, amen.